Hello and welcome back to the Bentley Priory Museum podcast. This podcast has been established alongside a temporary exhibition that explores the history of the museum's top secret underground bunker that was used both in the Second World War and the Cold War periods. This project wouldn't have been possible without the funding given to the museum by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Today we are joined by Air Marshal Cliff Spink and podcast volunteer Tim, where we will learn more about the Dowding system and how the Second World War invention still held relevance in the Cold War. So without further ado, Tim will introduce the conversation with Cliff. I'm pleased this morning to be in conversation with Cliff Spink. Cliff is a retired Air Marshal, Spitfire pilot extraordinaire, and currently is Chair of Trustees of the Bentley Priory Museum. From its inception, the bunker at RAF Bentley Priory played a central role in the air defence of the United Kingdom. The vital role it played during World War II continued into the Cold War of the second half of the 20th century. Today, I'll be talking to Cliff about the Dowding system, where the name came from, its connection with Bentley Priory, how it worked, and its relevance throughout both the Second World War and the Cold War period. Good morning, Cliff. Morning, Tim. Nice to see you. Uh, nice to, to see and to, to speak with you this morning. Um, what I'd like to explore with you this morning is this phrase, the Dowding system, and the meaning of that phrase and its importance. And I think if we start with a very basic question, first of all, um, the Dowding systems often referred to when people talk about Bentley Priory. Can you tell us where the name comes from and any particular link with Bentley Priory? Yes. Um, it, it, well, the, the name revolves around um, Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding. Um, and why, why Hugh Dowding? Well, he was uh, originally, um, he was the first uh, Commander-in-Chief of Fighter Command. And it was his inventive mind that brought together a system which eventually became known uh, as the Dowding system, largely because he was the architect. Now, you've got to step back a little bit to understand some of the history about air defence. Indeed, before Fighter Command became known, and Fighter Command, Bomber Command, Coastal Command, in the Royal Air Force, um, as far as Fighter Command are concerned, it was known as the Air Defence of Great Britain. It says it all. Uh, but that was a bit of a clumsy uh, wording. So then became commands, of which Fighter Command became... Uh, the Air Defence of the Great Britain became known as Fighter Command. Hugh Dowding, being the Commander-in-Chief, had it in mind that we had to do a lot better with the way we organised our defences. Now, if you'd think back to the First World War, um, and indeed in the interim part of the between world wars, um, defensive aeroplanes, fighter aeroplanes, um, simply went up on standing patrols. Um, and the only way they, they would intercept the enemy aircraft was if they were in the right place at the right time. Um, and a, a lot of it was by luck. And now, obviously, they did intercept. And um, if the geographical area was contained, as indeed it was in the First World War to an extent, along the line of the trenches, then, yeah, the interceptions did happen. 
But Dowding realized that to defend a country the size, even though a small country, but to defend a country like the United Kingdom would take a lot more integration. And I'll use that word a lot. So um, he had his headquarters uh, on, at Bentley Priory. It was an old school, uh, um, stately home. It had a lot of history anyway, but then he, he formed his headquarters there. And as a consequence, Bentley Priory then became the headquarters of Fighter Command. And of course, the headquarters of what then became known as the Dowding System. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Um, could, I suppose the, the next obvious question is precisely what was the, the Dowding system? Perhaps um, you could give yeah. us a description of the bones yeah. and sinew of the, uh, of the Dowding system. Absolutely. Um, well, bearing in mind what I've just said, that you know, you, 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 it was just too expensive in men and machines um, to cover the complete extent of the United Kingdom. Uh, and there were various parts to defend. Bear in mind, up north, there was still a lot of industry in Scotland, but, of course, a lot of uh, naval bases, as there were indeed down south. And you had the industrial Midlands, and then, of course, the London and southern areas, which were obviously uh, the seat of politics and the seat of power. Um, and were also uh, closest to Europe, which was fast becoming. And Dowding saw this very clearly, uh, perhaps some of the politicians didn't see it so clearly, perhaps, um, apart from maybe Churchill. He could see that the, the threat was going to come from the continent. And so he wanted a system which put all this together. Now, luckily, uh, and again, being the man, forward-thinking forward man he was, he recognised this new thing called radar uh, was something that could detect aeroplanes well outside visual range. Because bear in mind, the only way of detecting an aeroplane was that was what we call the Mark I eyeball. Um, and so he could see that this needed to be developed. And he did. He put his every weight behind um, developing or as supporting the development of radar, uh, which, of course, was still rudimentary. But nonetheless, he saw the advantages of it. Similarly, he, he needed new fighter aircraft. So this was all going on, um, and he needed a way of melding this and, and, and putting it together. And so this, I'll go back to the word integration. He needed to use the radars as effectively early warning, early-ish warning, I suppose is the best way of putting that. But he also knew that that radar was no good. It was only really good looking out to sea. Um, inland, he was still, the radars were just interfered with too much by, well, land returns. So he had, a, had to have a system internally, if that's the right way of putting it. So he had the, what was then the Observer Corps became the Royal Observer Corps with their own, literally, Mark I eyeball, but with their equipment, which gave um, both height and estimated range, and also a communication system. We always forget that the, the GPO, uh, as it was, and were absolutely essential to this because not only did the radar have to report the raids in, um, so did the Observer Corps. 
So we're beginning to get the strands. Now we've got the fighter airplanes. Okay, fine, they're better. We've got the radar. Yeah. We've got the Royal Observer Corps and we've got the communications. Then he had to pull it all together. He had to fuse that information. And that was done through a cascade system. If we sort of take the Bentley Priory at the top, the fighter command headquarters, then we had the groups. They were in geographical areas, which I've previously mentioned. We had 10 group in the Southwest, 11 group in the vital Southeast sector in London, um, 12 group, which covered a, a swathe of the Midlands across the industrial Midlands and, and then up to 13 group in Scotland uh, and the North. So you had the fighter command at the top doing that coordinating, the group headquarters, which you actually fighting the tactical battle and even broken down further in the groups were sectors and the sectors had sex sector stations, airfields, but that all had to be pulled together. So you had this cascade system, but it was all fused together. And indeed it, it went to um, Bentley Priory and they had this massive information coming in, obviously from different sources. And they actually was put through a filter room at Bentley Priory before it then went into the operations room. It's a little bit like um, you suddenly getting 30 phone calls uh, all at once. Now, you wouldn't really be able to sort of manage all that information. So you needed a, a separate inf to filter it out to give you the real nub information. And that really was the doubting system. It was integrated. And it was the first time ever in the world that we had a system which had, it had that level of integration. Mm. It's, it's interesting to note as well that in terms of the, if you like, the communications backbone, I'd better explain for, for younger listeners that GPO is the general post office, um, which at the time was responsible not just for, for letters and parcels, but for telecommunications. Um, interesting to note that the civilian organisation as well, so integrated to, to maintaining the, the communications system. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. I'm, I'm sorry, I interrupt there, Tim, but yes, for our uh, younger people listening, um, it was absolutely essential. And you have to bear in mind that uh, communications in the Second World War were all hard, what we would call wire, hard wire. Now, you're all familiar with the telephone wires, um, but of course, a lot now is being done uh, really by mobile phones, which is done through its own separate signal. You don't need a wire going to your mobile telephone. In the Second World War, it was all done by a telephone a manual telephone, which was connected by a wire from one end to the other. And you can imagine the complexity of that. Um, and of course, um, the teams that the General Post Office, and thank you for expanding that, um, they had teams out because if a bomb dropped, as many, many did, of course, um, it wasn't just the danger to life and uh, of the individuals on the stations or wherever. But if it cut communications, then the uh, post office, as it was, um, communications engineers 
were working flat out to make sure that those communications were repaired. Yeah. Um, no, go on, sorry. No, so to, I mean, to add complexity to complexity, I, I, again, I understand uh, from Bentley Priory, there were connections to, uh, to the passive defences like balloon command, but the balloon service, and um, to li liaison with the army in terms of anti-aircraft defences. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, and um, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, while Dowding and his group commanders um, and then his sector commanders and then his squadron commanders who were actually flying the aeroplanes, they were all integrated in, in a, um, against uh, and flying against the enemy aircraft. Uh, there were other defences there, as you correctly mentioned, the anti-aircraft, which itself was building up um, balloons, as you correctly said, were building up. And so it, actually the headquarters of those balloon command and anti-aircraft were actually very closely located to Bentley Priory. Um, and, uh, and there was a, that physical link between them because you had to have some coordination. What you didn't want is our friendly fighters flying into balloons or into anti-aircraft um, you know, systems. So that had to be integrated as well. Um, and, and thank you for mentioning that. And we keep coming back to this word integration. Um, and it eventually got to a point where the people who were plotting on the big map of the United Kingdom, and now this was quite mechanical, even though the radar technicians were looking at a what you and I would call a television tube. They were only looking, they weren't looking as you would seen on uh, the TV films of a, a rotating, a rotating thing with seeing something going beep, beep. It didn't work like that at all. All it was, was what they call a cathode ray tube, which is essentially a television. And it just used to show a sine wave. And the technicians who were working the radars were actually moving their dials very carefully to finesse the best return they could get. And from that return, which was just a peak on a, a straight line, they could determine, uh, first of all, the range from the radar of that, those contacts, and sometimes the, the, the estimated size of the formation, and to a lesser extent, but to a degree, the height. And we had, the radar system had two layers. It had what we called, they were all around the coast of Great Britain. Um, and there were two, two layers actually. One was called chain home, uh, a chain, a chain of radars. And the other one was called chain home low, which was actually looking slightly lower at, at low level intruders. And so again, at the end of the day, it was somebody sitting next to the radar controller who was picking up a phone and telling that information all the way through to Bentley Priory. And I, they, in a way, the pinnacle of the, 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 the prime test of that whole system, as I understand it, would be the Battle of Britain. And it, it perhaps played a, a, 
a central role in, in, in victory in the Battle of Britain? Absolutely. It, it, it was, just as you say, absolutely central. Uh, of course, we all recognise that the daring do of uh, the fighter pilots who were very brave and, and went out every day. But um, the essential nature of the Battle of Britain was that, go back to what I said earlier on, when we were still doing what I call visual patrols, no coordination, very wasteful. Well, um, the Royal Air Force didn't have the luxury of having lots and lots of aeroplanes. It only had just over about 600 aeroplanes, so up against 2,000 plus. Those are, are approximate figures. So the commanders couldn't afford to waste their assets. They had to be precisely um, put towards the threat. Indeed, the German Air Force tried to seduce um, the Royal Air Force to waste their assets. Uh, um, but because group commanders, and perhaps I'll mention one group commander who was the group commander of 11 group, which is the Southeastern sector. His name was Keith Park, Air Vice Marshal Keith Park, um, a very, very able commander um, who was one step down from Dowding, but obviously Dowding talked to on a daily basis. But Park was controlling the tactics the disposition of his fighters. And because he had all this radar information and also verbal information from the Observer Corps, etc., he was able to construct what to him was a recognized air picture. In other words, he'd get a good view of what was going on. So he could precisely or quite precisely, probably not in today's terms, but he could quite precisely apportion squadrons against the threat at a time and a place. The last thing he wanted to do was order all his squadrons into the air and they'd all fly out towards Dover and the Channel and nobody would be there. So they'd all come back and have to land and, and refuel. And of course, if they were all back on the ground, landing and refueling, and then the enemy came up, then they would be caught on the ground. So that's the whole reason mm. the, the recognized air picture was so important. It allowed them to be in the right place at the right time, or pretty much so, although there were severe limitations even then. But the, perhaps I can extend that, Tim. One of the also the most important things about the Battle of Britain is that the Germans at the time just did not understand how advanced we were in such a system. They simply couldn't understand why um, we were in the right place at the right time. And um, as the battle developed, um, luckily for us, we had developed through Lord Beaverbrook, who was the man central to organizing the production of fighter aeroplanes, we actually started to get more aeroplanes in that period than people really understand. Our biggest vulnerability, of course, was the availability of pilots. It was always a problem. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think the Germans could understand how we weren't on our knees and how we 
how were we there all all the time at the right uh, at the right time? And indeed, mm. Goering, their commander, um, really thought it was just propaganda that we were doing so well. He he simply didn't believe that we were doing so well, which was one of the vulnerabilities of the Germans. They didn't believe, frankly, didn't believe their own eyes. Yeah. I, I think, too, it's worth it. You, you mentioned there a gentleman, um, Sir Keith Park, um, and we talked about the incredible technical complexities of the Dowding system. Um, it's perhaps also worth reiterating again, as, as you pointed out, the, the criticality of the people um, to, to making that system work, be they on the ground or, or in the air, the, the bravery, the courage, the professionalism, the dedication. And Sir Keith, if my memory serves me correctly, was a New Zealander. Uh, and New Zealand was by far not the only uh, country to provide individuals, people to serve in this system. Absolutely. I mean, Keith Park, as you correctly say, was a New Zealander and went on to become an air chief marshal in his own right. And uh, we can talk more. I could talk long time about Keith Park because he was a master tactician. Uh, and as an aside, he went on as the commander in Malta when Malta was up on its uppers. Uh, and, and coincidentally, the German general, Kesselring, who was so central to the Battle of Britain, was then the the German commander in southern Italy, also attacking then Malta. And poor old Kesselring, who was a very competent man in his own right, uh, you could say got beaten twice by Park, one in the Battle of Britain and then in the Battle of Malta. Anyway, uh, yes, going back to your point, um, it wasn't just British pilots. There were Commonwealth pilots, New Zealand, Australia. We had Indian pilots. We had Canadians. We had Americans. Americans flew before, indeed, they were in the Eagle Squadron. They weren't, many of them had come across through Canada. And of course, America by that time was still not in the war. Um, but they flew anyway, because they saw it as a, a cause that, that was needed to be fought. So there were an enormous number of nations, even down to one person from Iceland, I think, who was actually flew in the Battle of Britain at some point. And we had fleet air arm pilots flying. Um, you know, the fleet air arm uh, pilots that were there and around, they were flying in RAF squadrons. And of yeah. course, most famously, I suppose, the Polish, who had streamed out of Poland when they were invaded, had the most amazing journey um, down through the Middle East, then up through France. Many of them then flew with the French Air Force and flew against the Germans in France. And then a month or so later, they were in Britain. They joined the Royal Air Force and flew most effectively against uh, the Luftwaffe in, in this country. So some of them actually had flown in three different air forces yeah. in the space with, of only a few months. And of with, course, with, yeah, sorry, Jim. No, with, with a similar kind of tale in terms of, uh, of pilots from the then Czechoslovakia. Yeah, indeed, and, and, and check. I, I mean, in going through the countries, I, I would apologise right from the start if I miss out, people, but, but uh, the Czech pilot, for instance, um, uh, a Czech pilot who was actually flying in a Polish squadron, uh, Franciszek, 
um, Hurricane Squadron, 303 Squadron, which flew out of RAF Northolt, just on the, in West London. Um, 303 Squadron um, was the top scoring in the period recognized as the Battle of Britain. 303 Hurricane Squadron was the top scoring uh, Battle of Britain squadron. But Franciszek, who was a Czech, actually flew with them. And he was the top scoring ace, of course. Yeah. I sadly died. Uh, but um, so, yes, I mean, the individual tales of um, heroics and uh, are enormous, but they all, they were all part of a system. And if you talk to, uh, and, and sadly, most of them are, are no more, uh, uh, but it, in the years that I've been lucky enough to, uh, when I commanded 11 group, 1118 group as it was, uh, from Bentley Priory, I was privileged to sit down to dinner at their annual reunion, the Battle of Britain Air Crew Association, and, and meet some of these most modest men who did the most marvellous, uh, quite extraordinary things. Um, but they were the first to, to say modestly that they were just part of the system. Their ground crew, um, the, the, the radar sites, the observer corps, the people who were repairing their runways, repairing the communications, uh, the young ladies who were pushing the raid markers around the, the plotting, who actually, there was one at Biggin Hill, quite famously, the Ox Centre got bombed. Uh, the roof came in, they put their helmets back on, on and kept working. You know, bravery, uh, quite extraordinary bravery. So men and women alike, you know, there was, uh, it was a, a an amazing, um, amazing period in our history. And I think it was the model, uh, and you may wish to say, how does the Dowding system um, impact on what we do today? Well, it's enormous impact on, because it's that integration of all the different parts of what we would call intelligence, uh, whether that's radar intelligence or visual intelligence, or today there are other sources of intelligence as we know, but they all fuse in and a defensive system takes all inputs. And that's what Dowding was doing, perhaps in a rudimentary way when it started, but today's systems of defense do exactly the same. They take it in to, and, and they, they take all these different inputs and they build the picture and when they've got the picture, once you know what is going on, and I call it intelligence because intelligence uh, to the, perhaps some of the young uh, listeners, they'll be thinking of James Bond as intelligence and that sort of spies. But intelligence actually is a very broad, um, very broad canvas. Intelligence is about what you, what you know. And that comes from many, many sources. So um, having an intelligent and recognized air picture that can come from a drone, a radar, signals intelligence, um, human intelligence, but it all builds a picture as commander. Yeah. I, I, to, to try and sum that up there, because it's really important that, that uh, this, this critical importance of the principles of the system not just to the Battle of Britain, but to air defence systems today. Um, I'm getting a picture that um, 
the essence of of the system in terms of what is done is is the same today almost as it was when Dowding created this system. It's the advances in technology that determine how you achieve the what you're trying to achieve. Indeed, that, that's it. You know, sophistication has gone through the roof, of course. Um, and you know, we talked about radar technology. Well, now we've got aeroplanes flying around the sky that have got radars on them, what we called AWACS. You know, so we don't have just static radars, which of course they have their own vulnerability. Um, but you've got things with radar. You've got satellites with radar, satellites with um, visual systems, satellites with heat-seeking systems. Um, so all of them, not just radar, there's many other systems out there, but they all kind of came from the same principle. I think that's what we're saying, is that your principle that Dowding saw, and you've got to imagine he almost had a clean sheet of paper. Um, one always, I think, marvels at great commanders and great scientists, that they're able to, for no They've got no background, um, whether it be Einstein, uh, who looking and thinking about the, the theory of relativity. Um, anyone who suddenly thinks, well, why, what do I need to do? Well, Dowding is in that sort of era as a military commander. Um, he just thought what we would call laterally. He suddenly thought, you know, how do I do this better? Um, and that is, that's why what I call great inventors are great because they, they just suddenly think about, so their minds are so alive that they think, how can I do this? How can, what is this about? You know, why, yeah. did, the, why did the apple fall on my head? Well, let me think about gravity. You think about back in those days, why would you have that sort of great intellect to be able to actually think through why if you drop something, it actually goes down? <laughs> you know, gravity. Uh, and so I'm sorry, we're going a little bit far <laughs> over the point that the great, the great thing is that you, you have people with a, a mind that thinks, I can do this better, or why does that happen? Yeah. But anyway, Dowding was a great man. He was sadly, um, and <laughs> this goes back to my to politics. Um, uh, he was already, to be fair, beyond almost beyond what we would call retirement age. He was quite a senior chap then, um, but uh, he he wasn't treated well um, then. Almost, I wouldn't say ignored, but he was certainly sidelined after the Battle of Britain. And that was all to do with both politics within the Royal Air Force, which is shameful, but also politics as well. And um, luckily, he had one man who was a champion, um, and, and that was Churchill. And Churchill recognised the enormity um, of what Dowding was doing, so gave him every support he could. And when he got sidelined by messy politics after the uh, Battle of Britain, and when the history of the Battle of Britain was written, Dowding was 
again, rather sidelined. I don't think he was even mentioned mm. in official history. And Churchill, that's, that's my understanding. His name wasn't included in the pamphlet yeah. that was produced and, in about 1941. Churchill was so enraged, um, so enraged by this, he, he put it like this. He said, now, would it be right if Nelson was not mentioned in the Battle of Trafalgar? And that was, that was the measure of how important it was. Well, he did get recognition. I mean, this very conversation we're having of recognising. And I think it's another important point that we should um, be aware of. Um, history is a very variable commodity. Um, very often, um, for example, people say the victors very often write their own history of what, what went on. I would say to any student of history, dig into it. Uh, don't take it entirely on face value. Look at it, uh, examine it. You know, look at the even the Battle of Britain from the Royal Air Force point of view. We had uh, enormous fragility as well. You know, there were parts of us that we didn't do terribly well. Mm. Um, you know, there were, but that was probably a learning process as much as anything. People get fixed ideas about what is right and what is wrong, mm. and so yeah, did we make mistakes in the Battle of Britain? You bet we did. Uh, you bet we did. And it's important, whatever you're doing, whatever you do in life, um, that you examine every detail. Don't take it on face value because you won't get the proper answer at the end of the day. Um, yeah. You need to really sort of tear it apart. I'd say any student, become a detective in history. You read about it. It's so easy to uh, sit in your classroom or sit in grown-ups in the pub and someone says something and it becomes absolute that is the truth but chances are it's probably not the truth it's probably a half truth um so i was very sad and it was a lesson that um when politics got involved in it um and and doubting at least initially did not get it uh, later he was recognised and, of course, became Lord Dowding and, and got every accolade that he justly deserved. Yeah. In history, Dowding, in, the, in, in British history, Dowding is one of those people who really is up there with Drake um, and the Armada, Nelson and Trafalgar, and, um, well, who, who you want to name and who have been great men in our history. Doubting is one of them. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic way actually to 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 draw our conversation to an end, Cliff, and you know to to remember great people doing great things, uh, and with that exhortation to people who study uh, these things, actually to to think and to question um, and to examine properly what's happening. But certainly, Lord Dowding, I believe, of Bentley Priory. Um, a, a fan, fantastic example of a man. Thank you very, very much, Cliff, for, for taking the time to speak to me this morning. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, again, thank you. That's all I can say, really. Thank you. My, my pleasure. And whoever looks into this, my best of luck with your studies at whatever level you are. Brilliant. I hope you enjoyed listening to Tim and Cliff talking about the Dowding system. 
We will be back again next month with a new podcast episode. So until next time, thank you.